I'm Scott. I'm Bill. And, and we're, we're the, the Trade, Trade Guys. Guys. You're listening to The Trade Guys, a podcast produced by CSIS where we talk about trade in terms that everyone can understand. I'm H. Andrew Schwartz, and I'm here with Scott Miller and Bill Reinch, the CSIS Trade Guys. On this episode of The Trade Guys, we discuss how Russia's invasion of Ukraine is impacting trade and the global economy. Plus, we'll do a quick take on President Biden's State of the Union. Stay tuned. The Trade Guys are on the way. Gentlemen, we're in the middle of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. We're recording this on Thursday, March 3rd at about 10 a.m. Eastern time. Things are fluid, but in the world of trade, you know, what are some of the immediate trade consequences of this conflict? Well, there seem to be lots of sanctions, well, an enormous amount of them when Switzerland starts putting financial sanctions after several centuries of neutrality. Yeah. yeah you know, you've reached kind of a, a new point. Yeah. If Switzerland's getting involved, I yes. mean, you know, this has got to be serious. It's really historic. I mean, they've avoided yeah. this, as Scott said, for, well, 200 years at least. And it's incredibly significant that they chose to do this. I mean, I think it's a great statement on their part. It'll have an economic impact because there are so many, uh, there are so many assets there in Swiss banks. Uh, that's for sure. On the sanctions front, it, it looks to me like it's intense, but it's somewhat haphazard. Usually sanctions, if, when they work, work the best when they're in service of diplomacy. And there's both a way to escalate the pressure and a way to provide off-ramps. And if you actually want them to work, the off-ramps part are actually pretty important. I think it was Sun Tzu who said, always give your enemy a golden bridge on which to retreat. And so yeah, I, don't, yeah. I don't see any of that. I also don't see any, you know, sort of modulation on the way up. Now, there's immediate effects on the Russian government to the extent they've not planned countermeasures, but which it appears they have. A couple other ones are, look, the Russian people are going to face a lot of inflation and shortages and those kinds of things. And I think poor people around the world are going to get hurt in the next six months, mostly because both Russia and Ukraine are major exporters of grain, wheat in particular, and Russia is a major exporter of fertilizer. And shortages of grain, shortages of fertilizers will lead to food insecurity in a lot of places. We've all seen the oil prices, but those are the non-oil commodities. Those are the ones that I think will have biggest impact. Regrettably, the impact is not on Russians alone. And once you turn these sanctions on, it's not so easy to turn them off, correct? I mean, as a legal matter, it's easy. You put them on and you can take them off. There's a lot of lingering effects because... That's what I mean, yeah. Yeah, what happens is that companies separate from the Russian economy. In fact, one of the things that has interested me about this is the extent to which the private sector has really climbed on board the train right. voluntarily, uh, which I didn't expect. I wrote a column on this and I had to rewrite it three times because things kept happening that suggested much more Western unity on this than I expected. And companies like like shipping companies, Maersk in particular, have essentially said we're not going to ship things to or from Russia. It's nearly half of the world's shipping capacity has now separated itself from Russia. Other companies have stopped doing business there. Disney and a number of other uh, you know streaming services have halted their entertainment work in Russia. You know, it's just growing. Airspace limitations is one of the things that I think has been uh, particularly interested. Airlines are declining to fly there. 
Russia's responded in kind. What that's going to do is isolate the country. I think one of the things that was interesting to me that people don't always think about is a huge portion of Russian aircraft, and Russia is not unique, are, are leased and not owned by the Russian airlines. And they're mostly leased by Irish companies. The Irish are saying they want their planes back. I don't know that they'll get them, uh, but you know, it, it creates a very complicated situation. And you're right. Once the separation has begun and, and a new reality has been created, it'll take time to get it back to what it used to be. And people are going to be cautious. You know, it, yes. it's uh, having been burned by this, but burned by Putin. I think there's going to be a long term effect where businesses are going to be very reluctant to invest in Russia and very reluctant to do business in Russia. The political risk has just gone up off the scale. Bill, I have to ask you, have you recovered from the exhaustion of rewriting your column three times? <laughs> it, ru <laughs> it, it ruined my Sunday and my Monday, but uh, I uh. have recovered and I'm getting ready for the uh, next week's column, which will be on a related element of the subject, which is the idea of, you know, let's punish Russia by kicking them out of the WTO, which I think is an awful, yes. an awful idea. But Before we get to that point of agreement on what's an awful idea... Uh, I think it's important to note that energy is still flowing. Right. Uh, you know, one of the things Russia could have done and did not do is cut off the flow of natural gas to Europe as a whole. And uh, look, Germany in particular, but Europe as a whole get over a third of their natural gas supplies here in the winter from Russia, most of it on a pipeline that travels underneath Ukraine. And Ukraine also gets revenue from that pipeline being in operation. So this is it's an unusual you know, set of sanctions from that standpoint is the one big enchilada that would have shifted a lot more in terms of geopolitics has not been put in place. And that's the one going back to Andrew's question earlier. That's the area where I think you'll see the biggest impact on the United States. There's not a lot of direct trade between the United States and Russia. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's a couple items. Uranium is one where we've seen people scrambling to find another source. Titanium is another one where the U.S. is a direct customer of Russia. We don't actually import that much oil and no gas from Russia, but the impact on prices has been dramatic. I think it's up to $110 a barrel. You know, and I'm, I'm here to tell you, Bill and Scott, Tito's vodka, which is made in Texas, is really good. And and I will, you know, I don't drink Russian vodka. I drink Tito's vodka. I buy American. Okay. Just so you all know, for the record. My mind is hey. knowing that. Uh, okay, good. Uh, you can also buy, <laughs> if you want to strike a blow for freedom, you can also buy Polish vodka. Sure. Which is very good. And I assume there's Ukrainian vodka on the market. Oh, huh, interesting. But the, um, the oil issue is going to bite us in, in, in multiple ways. I mean, prices going up is good for our producers because they benefit from it as well. But it's not going to be good at the pump. You know, and energy is such an underlying factor in manufacturing and across our economy. It's going to add to inflation. I mean, in fairness, I mean, there's never a good time for a war. But this comes at a particularly bad time because we were in an inflationary cycle anyway, and energy prices were going up anyway, even before all this. And this just makes it worse. Well, I'm not so sure Vladimir Putin would have been so emboldened to invade if oil wasn't at $100 a barrel. If it were 40, you have a good point, but it hasn't been 40 for a couple of years. Yeah. 2019, 2020, it was about there. So there's been underinvestment in oil assets, particularly in the United States. Well, so this, this is so my question, tight. Scott. This is exactly my question. Are, why are we not energy independent? We clearly can be. Well, we and, were in, in 2019. Right. Basically, there's a strategic choice to be made here, and it didn't get made in the State of the Union address. But do you want to be net zero 20, 2050, or do you want to have the geopolitical strength 
of energy independence. And those strategies are mutually exclusive. Yeah. Okay. Uh, yep. So, yep. so, so that we're still pursuing net zero or the Green New Deal or whatever you want to call it. That is based on high oil prices. High oil prices are a feature, not a bug of net zero 2020. Right. Because it deters excessive use. Well, it reduces use of hydrocarbons and helps justify other forms of, of energy production. We're really going to have to have a policy discussion in this yes. country about whether we you know, should be energy independent here. No, you're, you're right. It's the key strategic question that comes out of this. Germany in the past week has faced up to the fact that decommissioning nuclear power plants and becoming completely reliant on Russia was probably a bad idea. Bad plan. <laughs> so, yeah. uh, but but it's, it's, a, it's a fundamental question, I think, that arises from this. That's the geopolitical question that will have to be answered no matter how long this persists. And you see the energy industry here is doing the logical thing, which is taking advantage of the situation and arguing for uh, more incentives to drill more, uh, you know, more incentives to increase production. The White House pointed out there are currently, I think, 9,000 leases on federal lands that are going unexploited. So arguing that there need to be more is may not be the most compelling argument, but this is a debate that's going to go on and it's kind of put the climate people on back foot temporarily while they try to figure out how to proceed because Scott's exactly right. It's kind of a long-term versus short-term emergency issue. Well, we certainly are in a situation here we're going to need to make some tough policy choices for. Guys, I want to ask you this. Is Ukraine actually important in terms of international trade? And if so, how important is it? They're a relatively small economy. In fact, it's what's odd is there's massive sort of resource wealth in this big country, in particular the amount of fertile land they have. I mean, Ukraine was has long been the breadbasket of that part of the of the world. Yet it's one of the poor countries in the entire Eurasian landmass. There's a story of underperformance there. It is a very important exporter of grain, as I pointed out earlier, and that is going to be a problem. Not not for us, though, because not, we, are, we, we are Wheaties independent. Uh, yes, we are. It's, they're mostly, <laughs> their imports go to Europe and to the Middle East and North Africa primarily. It's going to be a big problem for Egypt. It's already a big problem for Lebanon, partly because their reserves are way down. Well, so does that does that become a problem for us? Because then we have to help those countries make up for that loss of Ukrainian wheat? I think our farmers would say that's not a problem. It's an opportunity. Right. Good. Okay. That's good. It's one of those things that we've got the Congress focused on taking away things from Russia. They've picked up this stick called normal trade relations. And I would hope somebody tries to figure out whether that particular juice is worth a squeeze. My sense is it's not. We don't import that much. There aren't that many tariffs. And it would be a unilateral action, as best I can tell, because kicking him out of the WTO, as uh, former Congressman Jim Baucus recommended in the pages of the Wall Street Journal, would take unanimity among WTO members, which probably isn't there based on the UN General Assembly vote that just happened. Well, and if you kick them out, that just gives them more license not to follow the rules, right? Well, exactly. Yeah, but it's, it's, it's a terrible idea for a lot of reasons. But what would happen and what the bills that have been proposed by Congressman Blumenauer and, and Senator Portman would do, there's two separate issues, kicking them out of the WTO, which is what Scott said. The other issue is kicking them out of what we call permanent normal trade relations, which is what they acquired when they joined the WTO. What Portman's bill would do is, in technical terms, means the tariffs would revert to uh, Schedule 2 of our tariff system, which are very high tariffs. They're smooth I think that tariffs. I think it's I think it's widen, not Portman. Uh, no, uh, both of them want to do that. 
Portman. I'm sorry. I, I think Portman has a bill. I think Portman has a bill too, but Wyden has proposed this. Portman's got an awful lot of Ukrainian people that live in the state of Ohio, just pointing that out. And Portman just went to Ukraine pretty recently and then came back and spoke at CSIS about it. It's there's I think 60,000 or so Ukrainians in Ohio. It's because yeah. it will be an issue in the election, but Going back to the, the the issue, we can take away their most favored nation tariff status unilaterally. That violates WTO rules. It puts us at odds with WTO rules. And this gets us into the, uh, you know, do two wrongs make a right category. I mean, the Russians have committed an enormous wrong. This is a very small wrong, but it's still a wrong. And it's frustrating to me. If you support the international system, if you support rules, I'm not sure the best way to respond to Russia is to also violate the rules. And I don't think it would make that much difference because the, the amount of trade involved is not that great. I, I know Congress likes to pick up the stick and use it. I have a potential carrot that doesn't violate the rules, that is entirely within the control of the U.S. Congress, it would be a three-line bill, and it would basically do two things. One, it would remove the current Trump-imposed Section 232 national security tariffs on Ukrainian steel. And it would restore the generalized system of preferences for which Ukraine qualifies, but the authority has lapsed. They wouldn't hurt Russia as much as they'd help Ukraine, but they are entirely within the control of the Congress and could be done. You put it on the House suspension calendar this afternoon, voice vote in the Senate, put it on the president's desk in 24 hours. That's really interesting, Scott, because it sounds like it would be a lot more beneficial to lower tariffs on Ukraine than to try to punish Russia in very complicated ways that might hurt us in the end. But there's nothing getting in and out of Ukraine anyway right now. I mean, it won't make much practical difference in the short run. Well, that's true. Well, who wants to make practical differences when you can have a tweet that, that goes around the world, Bill? Yeah. <laughs> Come on. Where, know, what are we doing here? I mean, the <laughs> currency is the tweet these days. So, yeah. It does sound like a good idea, though, to drop the 232 tariffs on Ukrainian steel. It is symbolic, if not actually practical right now. I, I would agree with that. that. What this really means, Andrew, is that your world has triumphed over the world of substance. <laughs> right. Bill, are you saying my world of communications is fluffy? He's just admiring your career choice. Uh, <laughs> I'm not admiring your career choice. I'm just suggesting that your world is, is not the world of reality, but it's uh, much more fun to operate in it. It's an interesting world when optics, you know, can overcome policy. It's, it's just, you know. Well, and you look at social media these days. I got to tell you, it is a hall of mirrors yeah. when it comes to what's actually going on in this conflict and who's doing what and who's right and who's wrong. It's it's wild. Uh, and so well you get into your own echo chambers. You know, yes. the people that you're following, you know, if you're not following a wide variety of people with different views, then you're just in your own, you know, echo chamber and you're talking to yourselves. And I think that's, you know, one of the problems our Congress has is that a lot of times they're talking to themselves as opposed to really listening to what the American people think. Although I've been impressed at the ability of the Ukrainians to counter the Russian disinformation tactics with some very creative tactics of their own. The Ukrainians have been very good at getting their side of the story out on social media. It may not always be true, and we know the Russian side is not always true, but they're holding their own in the media wars, and I give them a lot of credit for that. Well, they're trying. You know, I, I'm hearing from, you know, people on the ground in Ukraine via some pretty interesting sources that, you know, the only news that they're now exposed to is Russia propaganda news. If you live in Kharkiv or Kiev, you're not hearing your normal stuff. You're hearing Russian propaganda. And so there's a lot of misinformation out there. There's a lot of disinformation out there. And they're trying to sift through it. 
Fair enough. The one question I thought we might want to talk about, which does have its roots in a trade issue, is why we're buying Russian oil in the first place. Well, yeah, that's I mean, that's exactly the question. Why are we? There's this a fairly interesting story, and it's one about the way the U.S. economy has worked over the years and things that we might want to revisit because of this event that questions a lot of our strategic choices over time. It turns out that, well, first of all, it's important when you talk about oil and crude oil is like talking about wood. There's lots of different kinds of it. There's a lot of specialization in refinery capacity on which kinds of oil they can use to produce which products. But in simplest terms, think of you have the crude oil or the feedstock. You have the refinery, which makes consumer products from that those feedstocks. And the third piece is the consumer demand or customer demand for whatever it might be. Now, if you look at that, you've got uh, essentially a lot of production in the U.S. of crude oil. Say the Permian Basin is a great example. It's a huge reserve in West Texas and New Mexico. But it's not always connected via the most efficient means to the refineries themselves. So some of it goes on rail cars, some of it goes in pipelines, but not all the pipelines connect to everything you want to connect to. Now, it turns out there's this 1920 law called the Jones Act. The Jones Act was actually signed by President Woodrow Wilson, or could have been President E. Wilson, given what we know about the president's health in 1920. One of the things that's specified in the Jones Act is that any movement from one U.S. port to another U.S. port has to be done on a U.S. flag vessel with U.S. crew. And so at the end of World War I, that probably was a very sensible thing to do. And I'm sure there were national security arguments made for it. What it's resulted in is we now have a mismatch in the fleets. So if you need to put oil on a tanker to move it from, say, Texas, let's call it Houston or Corpus Christi, you need to move it to a refinery in New Jersey. You only can use Jones Act ships if you want to do it directly, which tend to be small because of that demand over the years. You're better off putting it on a super tanker and exporting the oil and then having another super tanker full of oil from a foreign economy like Russia to deliver to New Jersey. And because of that efficiency, Russian oil winds up in the mix at the same time the U.S. is exporting crude. All right. So that's probably the real reason. It turns out Hawaii is one of the places that needs the light, sweet crude. And because of the efficiency of super tankers, it's the easiest to get it from Russia it's most efficient to get it from Russia. But Hawaii is a, is a victim of the Jones Act on a lot. That's why everything's so expensive in Hawaii, or at least one of the reasons, because shipping costs tend to be a lot higher because of this restriction on U.S. flag vessels. This is an interesting wrinkle in an over 100-year-old statute that makes us reliant on Russian oil to keep the most efficient refinery operations and therefore keep the prices at the pump low. Sounds like the Congress and the administration really need to take a look at the Jones Act. Well... When they do, they usually get an unfriendly response. In fact, most recently, it was President Trump who wanted to uh, move liquefied natural gas from essentially Louisiana to New England, found out there were zero vessels in the Jones Act fleet capable of moving natural gas, and yet got pushback from his side of the aisle on waiving the Jones Act. Back when I, as a pup, and I took this on, I found out that the then Senate Majority Leader, Trent Lott of Mississippi, had some very strong views about the Jones Act and its preservation. So The pillager of Pascagoula strikes again. He had some company from John Bro of Louisiana and, yep. and other senators. I worked for Senator Jay Bennett Johnston of Louisiana, as you guys know. Senator Bro used to always say, you know, Louisiana is a two-party state because one party just isn't enough. <laughs> 
<laughs> anyway, guys, before we go today, I want to ask you, what did you make of the president's trade policy agenda that he talked about briefly in the State of the Union? Well, it was so brief that, you know, if you blink, you missed it. He didn't say anything about the Indo-Pacific Economic Framework, which was kind of a surprise since it's one of their big initiatives. In, in one, at one level, it's kind of understandable. A lot of the speech was overtaken by Ukraine and the need quite properly to spend time on that and focus on that. But, you know, one of the victims of that was the any mention of really virtually anything on trade, aside from going after the, the ocean shipping companies for anti-competitive behavior. There was not very much in it about trade. The annual trade report came out that day, or I guess the day before, 300 pages, mostly of summarizing what happened the last year. But it also uh, did not have a lot of news about what their intentions are. They repeated what they have said before. They want a worker-centered trade policy. They support uh, improvements in worker standards. They spent a lot of time talking about USMCA and the dispute settlement mechanism there, which appears to be working and appears to be producing, you know, union votes in Mexico to vote for independent unions that I think in the long run will produce better wage conditions in Mexico. That's all good, but you don't get a big a vision of, you know, a bigger vision here of, of what they're going to do. And even the the section on the Indo-Pacific framework, you know, they put tiny little more meat on the bones by making public that there's going to be four categories, four pillars, not six, which is what the president had laid out in October. Although if you look at the four, basically, they all incorporate the six. They just rearrange things to make it look different. And they talked in a little slightly greater detail about what they want to accomplish But the worrisome thing is that everything they want to accomplish, sort of uh, what's good for us, which makes sense at one level, but there's nothing in any of this stuff about what we're prepared to do to entice other countries to negotiate with us or to come in and have a broader trading relationship with us. So it's still missing, and the State of the Union added nothing new to that. The president's trade agenda, the report that came out, was sort of 400 pages of pretty soft, spongy marshmallow. I just couldn't get... It's hard to find anything to really get my hands on. And it came along with a tone that is, given the strength and competitiveness of the U.S. economy and the desirability of doing business with the United States, it's oddly defensive in its in its approach. So I'm hoping for better. And we'll see what happens practically as, as we move ahead. The key test, I think, will come at the end of this month when they've announced a U.S. ASEAN summit for March 28th and 29th. I'm kind of expecting that's when they'll roll out whatever they've been able to put together on the Indo-Pacific Economic Framework, and we'll see. I, commercial again, yeah, Matt Goodman and Emily uh, Benson and I wrote a paper on this, and we've had a lot of consultations with the other countries about this, and and they've had con- growing consultations with the administration about what they have in mind. And I think everybody's still waiting for the somebody to explain those, those magic words, tangible benefits. Because that's what the other guys are waiting to hear about. We had a conversation with a further conversation with the administration about what does tangible benefits mean. And and the one thing that came out of it is one of the pillars is infrastructure and helping other countries develop infrastructure, kind of a counter to the Belt and Road Initiative of China. And if you take away all the rhetoric, what that means is money. And money is a tangible benefit. You know, I give them that. Whether it's enough of a benefit to entice anybody remains to be seen. Guys, Really appreciate your insights today. We're going to keep talking about Russia, obviously, but we will be back next week. Same trade time, same trade channel. Thanks again, guys. Bye-bye. Be safe. To our listeners, if you have a question for the trade guys, 
Write us at tradeguys at csis.org. That's tradeguys at csis.org. We'll read some of your emails and have the trade guys react to it. You've been listening to The Trade Guys, a CSIS podcast.